The lectionary today takes us to a sermon that Peter gives, and it's a wonderful uh, call upon our lives to live a life that does not show partiality to the world. I'm going to do the sermon a little different today. I'm going to do most of it before we get to the text, and then we'll do the text, and we're going to allow the sermon then that Peter gives to be the call upon our lives, and we'll take the call that he gives to us, and we'll respond to that call. So Acts chapter 10, verse 34 through 43. I came across a fascinating article in my studies this week. The author titled it The Peril of Partiality, and he was speaking specifically to the struggle that we human beings have in two areas. First of all, to show partiality towards those who are rich, and then to show partiality or difference to those who are of the same race as us, and the same socioeconomic and even gender uh, characteristics. He noted that we are partial because we're a part of a world that shows partiality. It creates this pecking order uh, kind of structure in which we place one another in it. And in the article, he simply said, let's not do that, don't do it. And I agreed with him. I think that that's a, a great thing. The peril that this does to a unity, to community, uh, to fairness, to justice, uh, is something that even preschool children note if you start showing partiality to one child over another. And I understand why in our text today, Peter describes God in a primary way as being a person who does not show partiality, that that's the nature of God. And we can see that, of course, when he sent his son, and his son came as a poor child of an unwed mother, of a minority group in a subjugated nation, that all the things that you would think would give a person an opportunity to, to rise to the height of humanity, Jesus began in the lowest of the lowest states to live a life that shows us that the human life is something far greater than the structures and the ladders of our uh, lives. And that partiality, of course, is, not, is a part of his nature. And that God, therefore, when he looks at you and he looks at me, does not evaluate us on some kind of external standard, uh, some kind of esteem that the world gives, or, or uh, discount us because of lack of esteem or lack of standing that we might have in this world. Rather, he looks at the character of our souls, the behavior of our days, uh, the rightness, the righteousness in which we make our moral choices. As, as I heard those words, and as I'm thinking, of course, of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Day coming up next week, I could not help but remember the speech that he gave on the Lincoln Memorial uh, the I have a dream speech. And he said in the phrase that has always captured most of our imaginations of the kind of world that we could live if we followed this Christian pastor's view of what God wants us to be like in the world. And he says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now that's exactly what Peter said almost 2,000 years ago. But going back to the, to the author of this peril of partiality, where I was disappointed was he seemed to think that what will change all of us is if 
we simply change the way we think. If we could just be educated with the fact that partiality is a bad thing, then people will change their behaviors, that we don't uh, have to worry about the motivation, the heart of the individual, but rather they will just simply stop it if you could show them how this doesn't work in the world. We can't just declare that people should not show partiality or just declare that the peril of partiality is it destroys unity and it destroys community. People, by our very nature, put people into hierarchical structure, pecking order. And to just speak to the mind is to miss the psyche, the soul, the, the psychology, the self, the social psychology of humanity. It's a part of who we are, and we must address that if we are, in fact, going to change. We must address the head, the way we think, but the heart, the way we live. If it was just a matter of the head, then all we do need is just education. We could educate people out of this partiality and the pecking order and the competition and all the, the bullying that happens in these hierarchical kinds of structures. But education does not do it. Uh, education does not complete it. In fact, in our educational settings, in our schools, we have definite hierarchical structure in which there's a definite pecking order. We see it in the corporate world, in the business world. Definite hierarchy. We see it in our hospitals, in our medical profession. Definite hierarchy. We see it in the communities in which we live and who lives in what houses and who goes to what country clubs and how we live together. And we even see it painfully in the church, that in the church of Jesus Christ, we are often pecking order hierarchy as to who goes to what church and how they treat one another within the Christian world. It's a pervasive peril. It is ingrained in humanity that if we just speak in simplistic ways and say, stop it, we're going to miss what needs to happen in your life and in mine in order for us to not live in those partiality kinds of ways. Let me just give you one little simple. I mean, I know as I said that, you've th thought of a lot of different things as your life and your structure and your place uh, lives. Jill gave a, a primary example in her uh, testimony this morning. But let me just give one simple area in the area of social psychology. One of the things that we've all been concerned about, and there's been a lot of research now, is that pervasive bullying that happens. Now, we see it obviously at school because kids aren't very sophisticated about their bullying, but the bullying and the harassment and all of that takes place in a, the adult world as well. We're just much more sophisticated about the way that we do it. But lots of research has been done about bullying, and it's found in every language of the, nation, of the world. I read an article that was talking about how different languages use it in different words, and, and uh, they gave these uh, descriptions and examples. But since there are bullies in every culture, there are also victims in every culture. There are bystanders who just stand aside while someone is being destroyed, and there are advocates. And what's interesting is that the research they did finds that across the board, 10% of human beings bully. They're the ones that kind of reinforce the, the uh, social pecking order through their uh, violence or harassment or however they might be doing it. 9% then are their victims. Some victims must have more than one bully. 80% of us, and that's, that's what 
captured my thoughts. 80% of us stand by and let it happen. It's a tacit approval that this is okay in our school, our classroom, our business, our community, for a whole variety of reasons. And the researchers talk about all the different reasons people don't get involved when someone is being hurt. Thankfully, there are advocates, few and far between, but there are those whose heart calls them without thought, as Jill said, to step up and say no. In one study, school teachers reported that 79% of the time they step in when they see bullying being occurring among their students. The students cite that they only do it 21% of the time. So they're either missing the subtlety of the bullying that's going on or there's just a difference in perception. But the students then admit that they seldom step up when someone is being bullied because they know that if they do, the bully will turn on them. And they're afraid. And they also know that the majority won't stand up for them, that they'll be on their own against that bully. And so we're taught at a very young age to put up with it. There's a defining scene in the film, The Book Thief, where a German man comes to the aid of his Jewish neighbor that he's known his whole life. And this neighbor is attempting to uh, cover up the fact that he's Jewish. The, no the Nazi officers, of course, have turned bullying into a national policy. And uh, they are searching out and finding, and finally they discover that this man is Jewish. And as they come to arrest him in a very public way, the streets are filled with Germans. And this man cries out and pleads to them that they will step in and not let uh, this happen to him. And everyone, out of whatever reason, it could be fear, jealousy, could be just indifference, it could be, of course, competition, wanting to remove this wealthy man from the community. Whatever the reason, they ignore his pleas for help. All except for Hans, this main character in the book Thief. But when he steps up, the officer turns on him. This isn't the actual picture. It's the closest one I could find. But he turns on him and asks for his name. He fearfully gives it and steps back into line. And then he regrets having stepped up because now he's put himself and his family in danger of the bullying of the Nazi uh, officers. Now there's much more to that amazing film. I, I definitely recommend it, excellent film. It's great cinema, but it's great cinema because it speaks to the human condition, not just to the Nazi situation. Partiality, pecking order, bullying, reaching horrendous levels. But it represents every sibling group, every classroom, every business, every community throughout all humanity. We can say stop it, but we must be aware that it's far deeper within our human condition than some just simple command, uh, a war against partiality or something that might change humanity. Now what's interesting in the Christian world is the scholars who study this explain that Christians in the early church lived by the motto, by the declaration that God shows no partiality and therefore the Christian community 
shows no partiality. Everyone of every strata, of every nation, of every race, of every gender is welcome in the church of Jesus Christ. The poor, the broken, the blind, the lame, the wealthy, the educated, the man, the woman, the illiterate, the elder, the child. It was such a different community that the scholars tell us the reason the church was so effective is it gave a countercultural experience of a new kingdom, of a new world, in which there is no partiality, in which every human being is valued as a child of the living God, created in his image, whatever they might be within the structure and strata of this world and within its pecking order or scheme. It was a force for change that did not use force, but used belonging, love, protection, advocacy, standing up for the least of these, providing for them, being a presence in a world that was very much not like God's kingdom. But the scholars go on to say that this early church description of the kingdom of God and the church as it was experienced in which God shows no partiality was replaced in the later centuries with God who loves me. The community has now been replaced with the individual who is concerned about only God's love for me rather than God's love for all. The God of the Bible is the God who shows the same love to everyone and opens his arm to everyone and the house is open to everyone and the sacraments, baptism, we're all equal in the waters of baptism. Every human being, whoever they are, needs to be cleansed and forgiven of their sins. We're all equal at the sacrament where we all come forward and receive that forgiveness and cleansing in which each one of us need this salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. The God that Peter is describing is not a love which shows partiality, loving only me or even putting me at the center of it, but it is a love that is divine, all loves excelling. It's a love that allows us to experience caring for one another in a way that is supranatural and corrects this fallen nature of our human uh, being, our human psyche. Now that's the message of Peter's sermon. It's the meaning of the call upon our lives to live in this such countercultural love that it, it is impossible to do without God doing it within us and changing the heart within us. It's not just an education of the mind, it's a creation of a transforming community in which we truly experience the unity that is meant to be done by the communion that we have with God and with one another. It's a Christ-like kind of love. So understanding that, now let's listen to the sermon and we want to respond to the call uh, that he places upon us. So Acts chapter 10, we'll start with the 34th verse and go simply through the 43rd. Luke, of course, is recording the history of the book of Acts. And he reports, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show partiality, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. 
You know the message of God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now keep that open before you, and let's pray. Father, we recognize that we are a people who have great potential but we live in such a lack of that because of our fallen sinfulness. We ask today that you would continue this work within our hearts and minds such that each one of us, wherever we are on this journey and however we've grown in the past, may take that next step of living like you live and doing what you do and loving like you love. And so I would lift up every person here that as we respond to Peter, that you would give us your Holy Spirit to live it out. And of course, we'll give you the praise. Amen. The Greek word the Bible uses to describe this sermon of Peter is kerygma. It's a word that we use to describe a sermon that speaks to both the head and the heart, to the mind and the psyche, the soul, to reason and to the whole of the self. The problem is not that we don't know and understand. Many of us as Christians know far more than we're living. It's not that we don't know and understand that partiality, racism, classism, pecking order, bullying, all of that is bad. That's not something that we debate or even the world debates at this point. The problem is that we know it's bad and we still do it, often not even aware that we're doing it. We know that the rich are no more important than the poor, and yet we easily pay more attention to the rich, dismissing the others. So Peter's sermon is telling us who God is and how he came to be with us, how he lived this life of divine, true, eternal love, and how he calls us to do the same. So what we want to do is we want to listen each of these points and respond to them. First, that God does not show partiality based on where we are in the human pecking order. So we too are to set all of that aside. It does not matter where you are in the esteem of others or the lack of esteem of others. Rather, our place in God's people comes from our worship of him. And that's how you could best translate the fear of him. 
our worship of him, our awe of him, our majesty of him, and doing the right thing. So let's ask ourselves, how much of my life is spent climbing the ladder of the pecking order of my world? We all have different pecking orders, different ladders that we're trying to climb. How much of my life is spent climbing that ladder? Does that climb cause me to do the things that are right or not right? Do I step on others to get ahead? Do I focus particular attention on those who can help me in my advancement? Or do I focus on those I can help and care for them? And how will my daily life change if I truly worship God and live as he lives? What does that mean for each day of my life? And what would need to change? The second point that Peter makes is that the message of God is good news because it brings peace through Jesus Christ. And the implication being that peace is only found in Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all and the only one capable of bringing this unity, this peace among us. There's a, a neighbor over near our house who for Christmas, instead of using the usual Christmas kind of symbolism, put a lighted peace sign on his uh, hedge out front. And uh, I, as I went by it, I thought, I, I love the sentiment of that, but it's only sentimentality if you have no plan or power to bring about peace, everybody wants peace. How do you bring peace into a world that can't even get along in our own homes, let alone beyond nations? It's very easy for us to all recognize that war doesn't work, and yet we continue to put major resources into war when we don't care for the least of these. And they are going without basic needs. How can we possibly say that we believe in peace if that's how we're living each day? And so it comes back to each of us. We can't just have this sentimental longing for peace. We, we must have a help from the one who can bring peace on earth and goodwill among human beings. That requires a change of the human heart if that's going to really occur. So if that is Peter's point, then let's ask ourselves the question, am I putting my hope for peace in Jesus Christ? Do I live as Jesus lives? And then last, Peter explains that even Jesus lives as Jesus lives because the Holy Spirit is upon him. The Holy Spirit has anointed him because God is with him. That's the source of the true change of life and the true change of behavior, the true change of heart that is necessary to live a life that is true. So again, receiving Peter's kerygma, let's ask ourselves, am I receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit such that God is with me? Do I begin each day with that first breath Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. Is that how I live my life, filled with the breath of God, committed to his way, 
and looking for the opportunity in each relationship and situation in which I find myself. We are surely a people who need the power of God if we are to change the hearts, not only our own hearts, but the hearts of all people, such that people know he shows no partiality. Will you join me in responding to the Peter and to this sermon of kerygma, the transformation of the mind and the heart? Let's spend time with God.